0: The Bible is full of accounts involving difficulties in the lives of people. It's clear uh, that after that sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, and so bad things started happening from then. And if you read the entire Bible, bad things just continue to happen throughout that. Tragedies continue to strike, and today we even continue to see tragedies. As you see this picture up here, Oxford High School in Michigan, four students were were killed, and others were injured from A tragic and horrible circumstance. In a a world full of tragedy and trials, how are we to continue along in our Christian walk? How do we keep from losing hope in all the difficult circumstances that face us today? And there's only really one way we can do that, my friends. Only one way we can do that. And that is through the power of God, who not only walks with us through the trials and tragedies that we face, but he also works through us as believers throughout those and helps us move forward. Today we're going to start a th- a four-week uh, uh, series through the book of Ruth. We're going to be going through chapter one here, and we're going to be talking about a woman named Naomi who walked through all kinds of tragedies, who saw tragedy up close and personal throughout her life. And as we're going to see today, we're going to see how despite the dire circumstances that, she's, that she uh, uh, was given uh, in this life, despite the trials that she faced and the suffering that she went through, that God was walking with her all along the way. May we be encouraged to know that that same God walks with us today, too. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you prepare our hearts and our minds to hear your word. I thank you that your word is living and active, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. Uh, God, that it is just as relevant today for our lives as it was back then, Lord God. And so, Lord, I just pray that you be with us as we enter Uh, just this time of of hearing your word, God. May you speak through me. May it be your words and not my own. Uh, And uh, God, may you be glorified, Lord. We love you, and we thank you and give you all the praise. So this first chapter gives us three difficult times that we may need reminded that God walks with us. And the the, the first here, I'm going to go back one more slide. Uh, the, The first would be God walks with us in times of tragedy. God walks with us in times of tragedy. We're going to read these first seven verses here together. So you can read along with me. It'll be up on here. If you have your Bible, you can read along with me as well. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters in law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food, so she set out from the place where she w- where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Wow, uh, this is an extremely heavy beginning of any book. I mean, if we see here, we've already seen three people die, and we've only we're only seven verses into this, uh, just a ton of tragedy. And we see that these verses. They only cover ten years of her life, and she experienced the death of her husband and the death of her two sons within this short period of time. Wow, what a what a terrible start to a book! What a whirlwind of tragedy here. First, we see that this book is set up in the time when the judges ruled. If you've never read the book of Judges, uh, it is a difficult read. Um, just. You see Israel, they stray from God, judgment comes, and then they turn back based on a judge that kind of delivers them for a short period of time. And it just keeps happening over and over and over again. In fact, at the end of Judges, we see this said twice in Judges 17:6 and 21:25. Uh, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So we see that the people are left without direction. You know, they, they had Moses that led them uh, through the wilderness, and then Joshua takes over and leads them, and then Joshua dies. And then there's a series of judges that kind of come and go, but there's no real leadership with these people. The book of Judges is fraught with moral failings and godlessness. And it's during this this time period that the book of Ruth is is, is taking place. It's, it's during this time period that famine comes to the land of Bethlehem. It's likely a judgment from God. We, we, we see that God had a conditional covenant with Israel. If they obeyed and they did what they were supposed to do, things would go well. Their land would be blessed. But if they did not, then judgment would come. So this famine is likely a judgment because of the godlessness of Israel. Uh, the Israel had turned from their God. And many people today try to apply that same understanding with our lives today. We say, oh, why are things, Why do bad things happen to quote-unquote good people? Why is my life not going well? I'm trying to do what's right. you know. And, and they take that conditional covenant that Israel had and they try to apply it to today. My friends, we are under grace. And you're like, well, grace it doesn't seem like it's any better. But it is, my friends. We are given the Holy Spirit that indwells us so that we don't need external circumstances to tell us whether we're in the will of God or not. We have the Holy Spirit as believers, if we have truly put our faith and trust in God, that indwells us and we get conviction or we get confirmation and peace given to us by the Holy Spirit when we're in the will of God. And yes, that may mean that we have trials that we face. Uh, Jesus said that a no servant is greater than his master, right? Jesus had a rough life. If anybody's read the life of Jesus, we see that he had a very rough life and so we're going to have a rough life as well. We're going to go through trials. We're going to go through tribulations. He doesn't promise it's all going to be rosy and pretty. But in that same blessing uh, of that grace, and maybe things on, on, we don't have this prosperity gospel that is peddled sometimes out there. That's not a true, that's not part of the new covenant. That's not where we're at. We also are blessed that we're not judged by God. So that, that same God that gave them these, these wonderful blessings also judged them when they were not doing what they were supposed to do. We face discipline as sons and daughters of God. but we don't, we don't face judgment from God if we are believers because Christ took that judgment on the cross for us. We are forever free from the bondage of sin that will lead to hell. If, if we have put our faith and trust in Christ, his imputed righteousness is upon us. So even though we might not have the, 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 the rosy life if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, As we see from Israel, how much time did they really have that was rosy? If that's the covenant that we wanted to go through, and we want to be a part of the the works-based covenant, we see that they failed time and time again, time and time again. So praise God that we don't have to look at external circumstances to judge whether we're in the the will of God. We have the Holy Spirit that guides and directs us. Next, we are introduced to the family of a man named Elimelech. So Elimelech, which means God is king, comes from the the tribe of Judah around the area of Bethlehem. Remember that as we enter this Christmas season, you're wondering, why why are we doing Ruth throughout the the, the month of December? Well, just remember Bethlehem and start and remember Elimelech here as we continue to move forward. We're also given his wife's name, Naomi, which means pleasant. Um, You can go ahead and go to a couple more slides. There you go. Um, And then we're also given his two sons, Malan and Kilian, who mean weak and ill. So these names also set up some drama in this book as well. So we see these parents' names, right? Elimelech and Naomi. We have God as king and pleasant, just hope and, and wonderful, uh, just great names. And then we have these two sons, weak and ill. How prophetic were those names for these sons, We also see that they uh, moved to a certain land. We're introduced to a decision that Elimelech made to take his family during the famine to the land of Moab. And you see this on this map, the the, the traversing, it really wasn't that far of a trip. If you look here, uh, they really just kind of went around the Dead Sea and ended up in Moab. And if you don't really know much about biblical history, you may not know how bad of a decision this was. Uh, Moab was not exactly the best of places during biblical times, during this time, the time of Judges. So first and foremost, if we go back to Genesis 19, 30 through 38, we see that Moab was actually, uh, has its origins in a very sinful act. So Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, his daughters get him intoxicated in order to keep their lineage going. One of the sons born from that incestuous, awful relationship there was Moab. So, so first we have their, their, their heritage, which is sinful and incestuous. And then we get to Numbers 21 through 22, and we see Balak, the king of Moab, tries to hire Balaam to curse Israel three times. So obviously we, we got some tension between these two nations. And then we move into the, even the book of Judges. We see uh, King Eglon, Eglon, who, who actually is ruling very harshly over Israel until they are delivered by a judge named Ehud who sets them free. So this was not exactly the most ideal of places for them to flee. There were a lot of different places they could have fled, you know, tried to go away from here other than Moab, but this is the direction that they take. These next uh, three verses, verses 3 and 5, just give us those tragedies all within a few verses here, within 10 years of her life, Naomi loses her two sons and her husband. She's left without any any man in her family, and this is a patriarchal society. So, you know she's she's literally doomed to be a destitute and poor widow at this point in her life. There, there's really no hope at this point. There's nothing, and and that's why we'll see what she says to her daughters as well. Yet, in the midst, the middle of this great tragedy, all these tragedies that we've just been thrown that have just been thrown at us we get to verse 6, and it kind of just throws us for a loop a little bit. We hear that God has visited his people. Wait a minute. So God has, she heard in the fields of Moab that God had visited his people and given them food. So just when things just didn't, they couldn't get any worse, right? She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She's left destitute, and good news comes to the fields of Moab. God sovereignly gives her this news that Bethlehem, is now being blessed. Bethlehem actually, ironically, means house of bread, yet they were without bread during this famine, right? But God restores that, and he's blessing them again. So she and her daughters-in-law start their journey back toward the land that Naomi uh, grew up in, in Bethlehem. My friends, God can take broken things and make beautiful things from them. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, I want us to read this together. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus actually quotes this in Luke four eighteen through 19. You may be at a point where you just finished Thanksgiving and really struggle to find things to be thankful for. We all have those periods of time in our life where there's, you know, I, I don't know what I'm thankful for. My life is bitter. I am Mara. I, I am bitter at this point. Life is difficult, right? Tragedy may have just struck us like it just struck Naomi. Yet God walks with us even through those times of tragedy. He is able to turn your tragedy into triumph, and he's, he's ready to exchange your ashes for beauty, your mourning for gladness, a faint spirit to a, to a garment of praise. You see, the triumphal entry of Christ was a great example of how God took what what was, seems like triumph, that turn into tragedy and turned it right back into triumph, right? So so the, the, if we look at the triumphal entry, the year before or the, the week before Christ is crucified, he comes in and they're shouting Hosanna in the highest. Uh, they're ready for him to take over because they think he's gonna he's gonna lead them and break the shackles of Rome from them. The Jews are like, hey, we'll put we'll make this guy king. This is great. Yet a week later, they found out that hey, he actually was coming to save them in a different way, to save them from their sins, and that wasn't what they wanted to hear. And he was crucified. Yet triumph he still did. What seemed like tragedy, three days later, turned into triumph, right? The, 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 the shackles of death were broken from Jesus Christ, and he rose from the dead three days later. What seemed like tragedy, you know, the Savior of the world, the savior of mankind, the Son of God, crucified and marred beyond resemblance of who he was, cast into a tomb, three days later, rises from the dead triumphantly over death, breaking the key, taking the keys of Hades and death for us forever so that we may live with him forever if we repent of our sins and put our trust and faith in him. We can have hope for our future because we know who holds it. We can have hope for our future because we know who holds it. We know that he can take our tragedy and turn it into triumph. He can take our broken hearts and he can restore them. He can take the the, the difficulties in our lives and get us through them. My friends, take one step at a time and God will guide you. If you have repented of your sins, if you've submitted your life to him, you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, he will walk with you and he will, will work through you. So we know that God walks with us even through times of tragedy. We also know that God walks with us in times of turbulence. That God walks with us In times of turbulence. So read along with me as we read verses 8 through 18. It's a nice little section of scripture here. So follow along, please. But Naomi said to her two daughters in law, Go return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Then they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. After reading this section of scripture, I think the term turbulence comes to mind, right? So we have times of turbulence here, and we kind of I kind of summarize them for you in your handout and on this slide here. So we see Naomi setting out with her daughters-in-law. They're all going together. They get this good news, and Naomi takes her daughters-in-law and says, "Hey, we're going." We're going to my home. Then she tells him to go back home because she starts to think, oh, wow, okay, this maybe not the best thing for these girls. They say no, they cling to her, but then Orpah heads back home and kisses her. Then Ruth joins her and refuses to leave her side. Is that not a dramatic interchange between these three women? One could only imagine the inward struggle of Naomi throughout this conversation, right? She knows that these two ladies don't have much hope with a poor widow like her. She she knows that they would likely prosper much more with a husband and a family back in their own homeland. Yet I'm sure that she also has a desire for companionship. Obviously, there's a close relationship between these two daughters-in-law and their mother-in-law. Right? They, they, they're crying just at the thought of leaving one another. Also, you have to think about the thought of going on the journey back from Moab was pretty terrifying for us for a woman by herself. Not only even just with a group of women, but it would have been terrifying. Then there's the kicker bringing back Moabite women to Israel. She was bound to know that there would be some problems with this, this interchange here. These women were unclean foreign women and were unlikely to be welcomed by the Israelite people. How could she get a husband from them from her own people whenever the people of Israel despised the Moabites? The Moabite people were, were idolaters. They were pagans. They, they not only worshipped false gods, they sacrificed their children to a god named Chemosh. They were a horrible people. How could Naomi take these women back to a people who despised the homeland in which they came from? Despite this likely inward struggle, Naomi, she gets firm in her decision to send them back. The best decision for these girls is going to be to go back to their, to their parents, go back to their mother's houses, their father's houses, right? And this, this seems to be selfless from Naomi. And there is an aspect that is selfless from Naomi. However, it's also an aspect that has poor theology. It's an aspect that seems selfless, but what she's doing by sending them back is not the best thing for these girls, for these ladies, for these women. Because now they're going to miss the opportunity to worship the one true God who created all things. They're going to lose the opportunity to be part of the people of God, people who worshiped Yahweh. Yet she encourages them to go back to her own people. And in verse 15, we even see that she says to Ruth to go back to her own people and her own gods. This seems selfless, but it's actually a condemning statement. She's telling Ruth to go back to her old ways. Yes, I know that Elimelech and I have taught you all about Yahweh. I know that your, that your, that your deceased husband, uh, Malan, has told you about Yahweh. I know that you know that, that this Yahweh created everything, that He is the one true God. There is no other gods other than Him, but you need to go back to your own home and your own gods. You need to give up all that what I've told you about Yahweh. Everything I told you about God, you need to give it up and just go back because what she's seeing is the true contentment comes from wealth, comfort, safety, and not from a relationship with the God who created us. Her theology is wrong. She's virtually guaranteeing, guaranteeing no no chance of salvation for either one of them. And I think we have an important lesson and principle that is prevalent in our postmodern society today that we can kind of hear from Naomi here. In our postmodern society today, we can we can believe and by we uh, not us hopefully, but 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 if you look at most postmoderns and and most people think in a postmodern way, most young people especially think in a postmodern way. And what I mean by that is that two truths can, di- can be diametrically opposed. Uh, they can be completely opposite, and yet they will believe that they both can be true. An example of that would be you can be a Christian and go to heaven, or you can be a Muslim and go to heaven. Well, those two truths, I'll use quotes, we know that one of them is true. Jesus is the way, the truth the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. They are both diametrically opposed. One says Jesus is God, one says Jesus is not. They cannot both be true, but yet in our postmodern society, they will say that they both can be true, even though they're opposed. And they'll even go so far as to say there is no such thing as absolute truth. What is true for you is true for you, and what is true for me is true for me. And that is, it's almost like what Naomi's telling Ruth. Just, just go back there, you'll be comfortable That'll be okay. That'll be your truth. That's okay. So many postmoderns believe that it's not about what you believe in, but it's about the affection that you show it, the dedication that you give, right? If you, if you go to that mosque and you pray five times a day to Mecca and, and, you, and you lift up Allah, well, then you're okay. If, if you're a good Hindu and you worship the way you're supposed to and you, you know, you're, it's in spirit and tr- you're, you're doing everything you can, then, then you're okay. But my friends, truth is truth and lies are lies. We cannot have truths that contradict. I don't know what world people may think they are living in, but it is not the world we do live in. Things are true. You know, if if we look, this is made out of a certain type of metal, no matter how much I believe that it's gold or that it's silver and that it's worth so much more, I guarantee no jeweler is going to pay me you know, what this, would be weight, what this weight would be in gold, right? Because truth is truth. This is not gold, right? And so the same truth that applies to that applies to God himself. God is truth. Jesus is truth, my friends. Naomi appears to be missing the exclu- exclusivity of Yahweh. He is the one true God. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Chemosh is not God. The other gods of the Moabites are not God. And so for her to send Ruth back, seemingly selfless, is an act of condemnation. Despite the objections of Naomi, though, Ruth makes one of the most powerful statements of commitment seen in Scripture, so powerful that it's actually quoted in many marriage ceremonies. And what she says here, and I've highlighted, highlighted a couple of things here, uh, For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth's vow is unto death. Her allegiance is to not only Naomi, but to Yahweh, and it appears unshakable. Naomi and Ruth have both went through some terrible tragedies and loss. There's been great turbulence, and there's been a lot of dramatic interchange between these three women, and now the two are left. Yet God continues walking with them on their journey. He doesn't leave them hanging. His sovereignty is guiding and directing them, even through their loss and tragedy, guiding them. And was guiding Naomi, and now is guiding Ruth as well. Some commentators do not see this as a conversion experience for Ruth. I I would beg to disagree. I see this as a definitive salvation experience for Ruth, that she has went from a Moabite pagan to a full-out believer in God. Isn't that what really salvation is today? It's giving up everything for Christ. It's saying, not my will. It doesn't matter what my culture says. It doesn't matter what my family does. It doesn't matter anything. It matters what God thinks. I give up everything unless I I need to hate everything else. Again, by hate, it means loving God so much that everything else looks like you hate it. I'm going to give up everything for him. And that's what Ruth has done. She's given up her family, her, her gods, little G gods, her culture, her way of life, her favorite foods, everything that, that, that she did back in Moab, the way that she's lived, right, her whole life. She said, no, I want to follow Yahweh. I'm going to go back to your, with your people. Wow. But isn't that what salvation and being born again today really is for us? That despite our tragedies and our turbulence that we go through, despite our trials, despite how things don't always make sense, that we're willing to give up everything for him. Absolutely. So this is a story of salvation. Today we may be saved through faith in Jesus Christ, as we've talked about already. But we must be willing to leave everything else behind all of our sin, everything we need to repent of our sin, to turn away from it, our lifestyle, the things we want to watch, the things we want to do that are not holy, got to be willing to cast it all off and follow Jesus Christ, to repent and turn from our sins. 2 Corinthians six two, Paul says this, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation, my friends. If you have not placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day, not tomorrow, not three days from now. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you are hearing the word of God proclaimed, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he rose three days later, that he is now at the right hand of the Father, and he's interceding for you, open arms, welcoming you into the family of God. He will forgive you for anything you've done. Nothing can be bad enough to keep you. No tragedy can be hard enough to keep you away from him. He understands tragedy better than any of us do. Everyone who dies Those are people that he made, that he knit together in their mother's womb, as Psalm 139 states. He hurts more than we ever could about each and every person who dies. He understands tragedy. He understands turbulence. He understands what it was like to be betrayed. He had a turbulent life throughout his life. He will walk with you, and he will work in you and through you. Finally, God walks with us in times of tribulation. God walks with us in times of tribulation. Let's read 19 through 22. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me, say so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So now she's come back. She's come back in faith after hearing that the barley harvest had come. The famine was gone. She acknowledges the sovereignty of God in her statements, which is some good theology there. Yet she also comes home marred by sin and bitter. She does not acknowledge the grace of God that has given her this this blessing of food that has relented on the famine. There's also no sign of repentance from her. She and her husband had left her people and, and traveled to a foreign land of Moab. Yes, there was a famine, but they could have went somewhere else. But they go to Moab, and not only do they go to Moab which is first and foremost a, a lack of faith there that God will provide. But then we also see that what do they do, what does she do with her daughter or her sons? She allows them to intermarry with Moabite foreign women, which was commanded against. So they they they're sinning by doing that and they allow them to do that. And there's no repentance. You know, Lord, I'm sorry that I did this. I I, I repent of my sins. Despite all of God's warnings against those things, she misses God's grace. In the midst of her her poor choices, her sinful choices, her husband's sinful choices, her son's sinful choices, she misses God's grace in providing Ruth, someone that should have been cast out because she was not an Israelite. She was not one of God's chosen people. Yet God reveals himself to Ruth, and Ruth places her faith in God through grace. She is redeemed through the grace of God. You see, grace didn't start with Jesus' death. Sometimes we think the Old Testament is all law, no grace, and the New Testament is all grace, no law. No, God still has a law. Jesus fulfilled that law. Praise be to God for that, that we don't have to hit every single thing to be a Christian. Jesus has fulfilled that law. Praise the Lord for that but he still has commands. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. The opposite of that is true as well. If you don't love me, you won't obey my commands, right? We see that. So the law continues, but we are under grace. Praise praise the Lord for that. But we also see grace in the Old Testament. God is an unchanging God. We see in Malachi 3, 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. And in Psalm 102, 27, but you are the same and your years have no end. And moving to the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. God does not change. He offered grace in the Old Testament, and he offers grace under the New Covenant in the New Testament we see today. How he offers grace is different in the Old Testament compared to the New Testament. Now it is through Jesus Christ and his, his death and, and resurrection and his crucifixion that he went through but all of his grace in the old testament pointed to Christ everything pointed to Christ and you will see just how much this grace that he shows to Ruth points to Christ as we go through this book despite this grace Naomi asks that she be called Mara this is a reference from Exodus 15:23 through twenty-five, And it says when they came to Marah, uh, which is similar to Mara, they're just different uh, pronunciations and different spellings. They could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Sound familiar? Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. Right. So Mara or, or Marah or Mara meant bitter. She was bitter because of her tribulation. The definition of tribulation is great suffering. I think we would all agree that she's went through some great suffering. It's a very fitting word for Naomi at this point of her life. She suffered in Moab over those ten years, the loss of her, two husband, or her husband and her two sons. And now she's likely suffering from shame and guilt as she enters her, people, her chosen people of Israel and comes back home, and they see her just empty and bitter. Yet as we move to verse 22, we see some hope. Just like the waters of Mara that were bitter and undrinkable, made the, the, uh, God took those waters that were bitter and undrinkable and he miraculously changed them into sweet water, drinkable water. He took what was bitter and he made it pleasant. There's hope that God can take this bitter woman, Mara, and take her back to being Naomi pleasant, right? God has the power to take our brokenness and to restore it, to take what is bitter and broken and make it pleasant and full. How good is God? There is hope because the harvest has begun. There is hope because God is moving and there is hope because Naomi is about to see that God is still walking with her. Even in times of tragedy, even in times of turbulence and even in times of tribulation. As we come to a close, I pray that you understand the goodness of Jesus, the goodness of our Lord and our Savior. I pray that you keep moving forward in your walk despite the tragedies, the tribulation, the turbulence, that you continue to walk as he walks with you and through his power. He will not leave you or forsake you if you are a child of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for loving us. I thank you for dying on the cross for our sins, Lord Jesus. I pray that if there be anyone here that does not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that has not repented of their sins, turned away from their sins, and put their faith and trust in you, believing that you are the Son of God who died some 2,000 years ago on that rugged cross, that you died, that you were buried, and that three days later you rose from the dead, and you now... Are exalted in heaven, Lord God. If if they have not done that, I pray right now that they clean, cl- you know, that they that they just clear their minds of anything but You, Lord, and that they ask for salvation from You, Lord. You are You draw us. We see that 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 You draw us to You, and that You use Your Word to open up our hearts and our minds to that. And so you just we just need to respond to Your drawing, God. So if if anyone here is is sensing Your drawing, the Holy Spirit saying, Hey. I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. I just pray that you don't harden your hearts as the Israelites did at, at the, the waters of Merah and Meribah. They they were bitter to, unto the Lord and they hardened their hearts. But God, I pray that, that, that we have soft hearts, Lord. And if anyone here has not made that profession of faith, it's like, hey, I don't know if I'm saved and, and I want to be sure that I'm sure God, I pray that with all, all of our, our heads bowed, our eyes closed, if that be you and you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm a, a true believer. I don't know if I've actually really said that you are the way, the truth, the life. I, I don't know if I've really seen you as the exclusive way of salvation to God. I just pray that you raise your hand and You say, you know what? I, I want to make this decision today. I want to put my faith and my trust in you and you alone. The things of this world are not enough. But God, you are. God, I pray that if anyone in their heart has said, you know what, I I need to make that decision. God, I just pray that that you save their soul. And if anyone is making that decision right now, I pray that you pray along with me here. Heavenly Father, please forgive me for I am a sinner. God, please cleanse me of my sins. I can't work my way to you. I've tried, but God, you have given me salvation, and thank you, Lord, for that. God, help me to follow you. I believe that you are the Son of God. You are Jesus Christ. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you rose three days later. God, I repent of my sins. I turn from what I want, and I turn to you. Be the Lord of my life, and I want to follow you, Lord. God, I pray that if anyone here has made that decision, prayed that prayer, God, that they come and, and talk with me. I'd, I'd love to, to kind of tell you about the next step there of, of how to follow Christ. For those of us who are believers already, we know that you walk with us and that you work through us as we face the tragedies in our lives. And God, I just pray that you comfort us, that you walk with us, and may we be encouraged by you today. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. Amen.